Today, as we embark upon the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, we are going to see a narrative of a story that is very familiar to religious and non-religious people. It is the story of the man who was born blind. You will recognize this story by one of the most, its most famous statements. It goes something like this. John 9.25, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Or as you may know it, once I was blind, but now I see. It is found in one of the great hymns that both believers and non-believers know and love, Amazing Grace. And you know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. That statement comes from the, the story that we are going to look at this morning. And although this statement is, is truly one of the main points of this chapter, there is much more to this story. As a matter of fact, the entire Gospel of John is intended to highlight the deity of Jesus. That is, Jesus is God. Amen? Amen? All throughout the Gospel of John, the Apostle John is being used by God to reveal the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And the things that John writes in this gospel are not random. They are very intentional. John even tells us the super intentions or the, the way that he was superintended by God to write. And the reason why he was superintended by God to write in John 20 verse 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It could be said that this verse illustrates the, the theme of this book or the reason why this book was written. John is revealing to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things that were prophesied in the Old Testament concerning Christ. They are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that he is the Messiah. The story that we are going to look at today in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John is another example of how Christ fulfills the prophecy of the Messiah or Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the Messiah. Those who knew the Old Testament would be moved to remember the words spoken by Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 61 when they saw or read the work of Christ that we are going to see in this chapter. For those who don't know of that prophecy, Jesus reveals it to the, those people of his day. And we remind you here today of that prophecy. While Jesus was worshiping in Nazareth, he stood up, and this is in Luke chapter 4, and read the Old Testament, specifically turning to the passage in Isaiah chapter 61 and read aloud in Luke 14, uh, 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Bible says, as he rolled up this scroll, he sat down and all the eyes were upon Jesus. And as all the eyes were upon him, he says to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you can imagine the scene. Because of this, the people became so enraged that they took him to the edge of the cliff and were about to throw him off. But the Bible says that he walked right through them. It was not his time to die. The story that we are going to look at today is another example or moment in which the people, Jesus is saying to the people, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. The gospel is also written to prove that Jesus is the son of God, that he is God in human flesh. The gospel is written to prove that Jesus is the savior of the world and that by believing in him, you will have life. What we read in this gospel is not just a book for a book's sake. It is an evangelistic tool being used by God. And John is the person that is the writer. It is a means that is used to reach those who have been given ears to hear and those who have been given, as we will see in this story, eyes to see. With that said, let me pray and let's stand for the reading of God's word in John chapter 9. Let me say as we begin, I say to the, to the youth who are a part of this church, I say to the adults that are here, Respect the word of God as it, as it is going forward. Yes. Amen. I say that to everyone. Yes. The things that you want to do, the things that you are impatient to do, do them when time is done. Yes. Yes. Understand? Yes. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in Jesus' name. Yes. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning. That your people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear you and see you. Challenge us by your word this morning, Lord. Encourage us by your word this morning. God, I I say again, as I feel myself rising up, push me down. Make me less. Eliminate me, God, and let your word be the only thing that... That comes forth from this, this holy desk. Let your word stand, God. And I stand under it and I bow before it. And we too, Lord. As believers in your name. As those who have come from death to life. From blindness to sight. We too. Bow before your word and ask that you speak to us in it this morning. And as we read the word of God, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he washed and came back seeing the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, no. He is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to wash, go to Siloam and wash. So I went 
and I washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You may be seated this morning in the presence of God. In this story, we will see four points. And if you're taking notes, you may write them down. We will see, number one, man's problem. We will see, number two, the disciples' question. We will see, number three, the Lord's instruction. And finally, we will see, finally and shortly, the crowd's confusion. The chapter opens up for us another example of God's glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or God's glory revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of this chapter is interesting because unlike all of the other chapters in the Gospel of John, John references this story without any indication as to time or location. So there is no time of season that John indicates, and there is not not necessarily any location that John tells us that they are in. Although, as we progress through this chapter, John gives us a purposeful indication as to where they are geographically. Pay attention to that point. We'll get to that. But the Bible says in verse number one, as he passed by or as Jesus was going along one day, no specific place, no specific time and not necessarily in chronological order from the chapter before. Meaning, this is not necessarily a continuation of what just happened in John chapter 8, where Jesus is leaving or escaping for his life. In other words, John is writing another example in which you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts by saying, as he passed by, or on another occasion, verse number 1, he saw a man blind from birth. Let us begin with our first point, number 1. Man's problem. I would like you to notice verse number one again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. In that part of the world, during this particular time, it was not unusual to see a man like this in his condition, meaning a man that was born blind. Verse eight also tells us that this man was also a beggar. Difficulties in childbirth were so common to be born blind or to develop blindness shortly after birth was not an uncommon occurrence. Sickness, disease, deformity, and even death have all plagued humanity since the fall of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Verse 19 of that same chapter says, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, or all men were made sinners. This is the consequence of sin, blindness. This is also known, Genesis chapter 3, as original sin. And the fall caused original sin, or meaning that we are sinners by nature. Amen? We are all affected. We are all infected with the corruption that came by way of the sin that was committed by our forefather, Adam. In this particular case, the corruption that is being manifested because of sin is blindness. Blindness was an affliction that was very common in the New Testament. 
It was also very common in the Old Testament, mentioned in Leviticus and also mentioned in Deuteronomy and in the books of history. As a matter of fact, even the prophets mentioned blindness. It was such a common affliction. So far, Jesus to see so far for Jesus to see a blind man is not an is not an inordinary or extraordinary occurrence. It was something that happened every day. It was something that people saw every single day. It was a very normal thing. Now, I'd like you to notice this in light of the obvious truth that a blind man can't see Christ in light of the obvious truth that the blind man, the blind beggar has never seen anything. He's been in this condition since birth. This blind man is a representation, is a picture of humanity that is blinded from birth. Amen. Amen. This picture is a picture of humanity that neither has the desire or the ability to see Christ. Just as this blind man neither had the ability or the desire because he does not know Christ to see Christ. So we, in our natural state, as we were born, we neither had the ability nor the desire to see Christ. We know this condition well. We, you and I, were that blind beggar who sat without any ability, without any desire to see Christ. If you don't believe me, then listen to the words of Paul, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is on their lips or under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And listen to the last point. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why is there no fear of God before their eyes? Because they're blind. And they cannot see God. So they have no fear of God because they are blinded. Of their sin. We are blind apart from Christ. We do not pursue Christ and we will not pursue Christ on our own. Again, we are unwilling and unable to do so. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse number 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. This was man's problem. This was that man's problem. This was our problem before we came to Christ or before Christ came to us. Galatians 4, 8 says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those things that by nature are not God's. Second, second Peter 2, 19, Titus 3, 3, Romans 6, Isaiah 42, 6, Psalm 51 and countless other passages speak of man's inability to come to God on their own. This was the state of the blind beggar who sat day after day in hopes that he would be sustained by the generosity of those who passed by him. This, too, was the state of our lives before Christ came to us. We were living in hopes that we would simply get by. We were living in hopes that we would simply get ahead in life. We were living in hopes that maybe we would just make it throughout the day. But unlike this blind man or like this blind man. No, actually, unlike this blind man. Listen, we had no idea that we were blind. 
This man knows he was blind. You were born not knowing you were blind. It took another Calvinist to come to you and say you were blind. It took a reformed guy to come to you and say you're blind. Instead of you saying, I see. I see just fine. It took a person to come to you and say, no, you can't see. You're dead in your sin. And you are under the wrath of God unless you repent of your sin. We were like the opposers of Christ that we will see later in this chapter who believed that they had 20-20 vision. But they were just as blind as this blind beggar. The blind man could not see Christ or come to Christ. This is obvious, right? He's blind. But Christ can see him. And I would like you to consider the fact that in light of the, the, the normalcy of seeing a blind man, Meaning this, in light of the, how normal it was for Jesus to see blind men, how normal it was in that day for people to be blind, how normal it was for Jesus to even maybe walk past a blind person, Jesus passes by and then fixes his gaze upon this blind man. Jesus can see this blind man, but this blind man cannot see him. It is very normal for people to be blind, but out of all of the blind people, Jesus chooses to fix his gaze upon this particular blind man. Oh, you have to see the uniqueness of this example. In light of the fact that this man was, was born blind and people were passing him every day, Jesus passes him one day. And although he may have passed many other blind people, he stops at this particular blind man. Why? Because although the blind man did not know him, Jesus knew this blind man. And he knew this blind man from the foundations of the earth. Think about the fact that in the midst of a sea of blind people, Jesus fixes his gaze upon one blind man that is of his own flock. It would be like passing by a sea of people, not looking at any of them, and then looking toward one particular person and saying, yes, that one's mine. And he walks over to him with the intention of not giving him an alm and not giving to him a copper coin. But he walks over to him with the intention of giving him not only physical uh, sight, but also, as we will see later in this chapter, spiritual sight. He is going to open this blind man's eyes and open this blind person's heart. He fixes his gaze upon this blind man. This man could not fix his gaze upon Christ, but Christ fixes his gaze upon this hopelessly blind sinner. And as I said again, there may have been others who may have fixed their eyes upon this blind man. There may have been others who tried to help this blind man, but without knowing it. Without, without even knowing, living all of his life, he was waiting for the moment when Christ would be passing by and not even knowing it. And when Christ would fix his gaze upon him. As you lived your life, not even knowing. And then it was almost as Calvin said, Christ comes upon you or opens up your heart suddenly. It was an, an unexpected occurrence in your life. You were living in the way that you were living. You were doing the things that you were doing. Unexpectedly, 
sight came upon your blind eyes. And you realize this is what you had been waiting for your whole life. Well, this is man's problem and man's need is to be given sight by Christ. Number two, the, the disciples question. Verse one again, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? This is, a, a, as a side note, the first time that the disciples are mentioned in this gospel. We assume that they have been present this whole, this whole time, but this is the first mention that they have been expressly, specifically mentioned as his disciples. But their question, the question was not an uncommonly asked question in that first century. Now, listen closely. That question is also not a question that is uncommonly assumed in the 21st century. I'll explain what we mean. The disciples were echoing a teaching that was dominating the minds of every single person during that day, whether they were religious or irreligious. And that is this. Listen now. If something is afflicting you, it is the direct result of a sin that is committed either in your life or in the life of your parents. And there is some truth to that statement because ultimately every pain and affliction is related to sin. The sin of Adam. I'll say that again. Ultimately, every single pain, every single affliction, every disease, every death is related to sin. The sin of Adam. We live in a fallen, sick world. And the presence of sickness, disease, and death are a direct result of the curse that came upon humanity because of sin. The world is fallen. These afflictions are a direct result of that fallen state. Yes. The world that we live in today is not a result of the way that God made it. That's right. It is a direct result of the way that man has corrupted it. Yes. Yes. Amen. 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 So when we talk about society, when we talk about the culture, it's not the culture to blame. It's man to blame because man shapes the culture. That's right. Oh, they are influenced. They are tempted by Satan, of course. But the sin that we see in the world is our fault. To make a direct link to a cold or a cancer or a disease and to say you have a cold because of your sin. To tell someone you have cancer because of your sin. To tell someone who is suffering from an injury like I just recently had to say it's because of your sin. Is not always a proper conclusion to come to. To tell someone that they are afflicted because they have sinned to place you alongside of the three friends, so-called friends of Job. Who pressured him to confess a non-existent sin to God. Saying that if you confess it, then all your problems will go away. There was one problem. There was no sin. (laughs) This kind of, of thinking is oblivious to the fact of this. There are healthy sinners in the world. So if our sickness and our diseases are a direct result of sin, then what do you say about the sinners who are doing really well and probably going to live longer than me and you? I have an uncle that I wish. Never mind. I have an uncle that's probably going to live longer than me and live like the devil all of his life and still is a devil. Rejectors of Christ, haters of God. Opposers of the world of the word and the church are more healthy than some of you and I. 
So to make a conclusion that sin is what causes our diseases or our infirmities is wrong. Verse 2, they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Here's what they're asking. Whose guilt is this man bearing? Was it a sin this man committed? Or was it something that his parents did that caused him to be born in this way? The rabbis of that day were convinced that the sins of the parents would be passed on to the children. In other words, the children would be, would be suffering the sin, from the sins of their parents. Where did they come up with this idea? The same place that those who believe that in this generation came up with this idea. I'd like you to turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 5. I watched and listened to some amazing things yesterday that I'm going to share with you in a moment. <clears throat> the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it is in the second book of the Bible. Look to the very front. You're going to see Genesis. The next book is Exodus. Turn to chapter 20 and verse 5. The Bible says this. You shall not bow your knee to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So the rabbis gathered from this that subsequent subsequent generations would suffer because of the sins of their forefathers. And even today, you and I know this as generational curses. Just as a way of my own interest, how many of you have ever heard that phrase generational curse? My God, you don't know the gospel, but you know a generational curse. (laughs) Many of us have been convinced of the lie that when we begin to see some of the same habits that were manifested in our parents, being manifested in our own lives or in the lives of our children, we want to call up TBN and say, help me, I've got a generational curse. And they are obliged to answer that call And also obliged to encourage you to send money. (laughs) I listened to many false teachers yesterday explain what a generational curse was. And I know what it was. But I just wanted to get a little bit more perspective because I haven't been in the darkness for a long since for a long time. The one who really uh, blew me away the most was a false teacher by the name of Marilyn Hickey. She has a test in which you can determine whether or not. You have a generational curse on your life. And here are some of the questions that, they, that she asked in your, in your quiz, your question. Is there a pattern of constant failure in your life? Historically, is there a pattern of constant failure? Uh-oh, she says, you better have, you might be careful. There's a generational curse. She says, question number two, is there a history of untimely death and suicide in your family? Uh-oh, better be careful. You might have a generational curse. Is there a habit of high level anger in your family? Better be careful. You have a generational curse. Is there a high record of unusual accidents in your family? Yes, there is. I must have a generational curse. Is there a history of physical, emotional and sexual abuse in your family? Watch out. You might have a generational curse. Is there a history of chronic illness in your family? And there are more and more questions that she went through. And I had to just stop it and say, this is ridiculous. Some of you, as I went through some of those, may be sitting there and say, that's me, actually. I fit the bill. 
Let me call Marilyn Hickey. You do have a curse. If you are apart from Christ, you have the curse of sin and death upon your life. But if you are in Christ, the curse of sin and death has been broken over your life by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. There is no generational curse upon your life. Don't believe those lies. This notion that you are somehow paying for the sins of your parents is preposterous, especially in light of the passage that I just read to you. So let's use that passage and let's explain it. When God says the fathers, he's not talking about your daddy or your mama. He's actually talking about the, the heads of the generations or the leaders of the generations who establish what is going to be done in the culture. In this particular case, we understand it because we understand presidents and kings. The sins that they commit define generations and they are so rooted in that generation that they create a culture. And it sometimes takes three or four generations for that to be removed from that culture. This is true in our own country. We see the sins that are being committed by the leaders of this country and how they're having an impact on generations to come. Bills that have been passed, laws that have been passed, rights that have been given. It will take the work of God, yes. resulting in repentance of this entire country for the sins yes. of sexual immorality, for greed, for malice and the like. Yes. Yes. To change this culture yes. that is so rapidly heading toward a dead end cliff. Yes. 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 Don't say that because my dad had an anger issue, I have an anger issue. What happened is you were raised by your dad and you learned certain traits. And you pick them up. But now you are filled with God's spirit. And it is your responsibility to trust God that he produces in you love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness. And when you see the old man rise up, you ask God to help you kill him. There is no generational curse. That's right. That's right. Amen. Amen. This passage is not saying that your father was an alcoholic, so you'll be an alcoholic. His father's not saying this Bible, the, the word of God is not saying your, your dad was a drug addict. You'll be a drug addict. My dad was a drug addict. Do I look like a drug addict? I might be skinny like one, but I'm not one. That whole notion is completely alien to scripture. And in relation to this question, I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. I had the, 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 the huge temptation to to post my whole sermon on Marilyn Hickey's YouTube website. But then I realized if you look up my name on Google, that'll come up. Um, and it was just, I'd just rather preach it to you guys here. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 18. The Bible says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? He's speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, the pro- this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul as, well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Listen close. Meaning this. The proverb goes, the children suffer because of the parents' sin. The parents ate sour grapes, and now the children have bad teeth. God's response to that is, what is your problem? What is your problem saying 
that on behalf of me as if I'm saying that for a generation. Why are you using this kind of speech? Enough of this talk. Listen, the person who sins will die. If you sin, you'll die. If your dad sins, he'll die. But you're not going to pay for your dad's sins. Your dad will pay for his sins. You'll pay for your sins. The Bible says in Ezekiel 1820, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the, of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You, you are responsible for your own life and no one else's. When you stand before God, it is what did you do? Not that, hey, you're going to pay for what your parent did. It's you. Amen. 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 You should rejoice because of that. And stop blaming your parents. You don't have no excuses anymore. Stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming mom because she wasn't there. Stop blaming dad because he wasn't there. Stop acting out because mom and dad. That's, you are, are a fool for thinking you have the right to act a certain way because someone didn't treat you the way you think you should be treated. You're saved now. You belong to Christ now. Yes. Stop being a baby. Yes. 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 Amen. 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 Back to John chapter nine. <laughs> Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Let me say as we move on, I don't want you to gather that sin doesn't that sin doesn't result in affliction. It does. If you do drugs, you'll die. Okay? If you live an immoral life, you'll catch a disease and you'll die. If you're uh, greedy or a glutton, you'll die. All right? Let's make that clear. We're trying to explain that affliction is not always the result of sin or not always the, from sin. And we're also trying to explain there's no such thing as a generational curse. So here's the Lord's instruction upon the question. Verse, and the instruction is twofold. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. No. It was not this man's sin. And although he is born in sin, no, it's also not his parents' sin. Although they are born in sin, and we're going to meet them later, you're, both, you're wrong on both accounts. Now, I want you to listen closely. Then why was this man born blind? Do you ever think about some of those things when kids are born with particular afflictions? When they're born with Down syndrome? When they're born with blindness? When they're born deaf? When they're born with a limb missing. You ever think about God? Why would you allow this to happen? Here's the answer that Christ gives concerning those kinds of questions. This man was born blind for this day and for this time. Listen. This man was born blind so that I might fix my gaze upon him. This man was born blind for the glory of God. The blindness was put into this man's life so that he, this man, could put Christ on display. Yeah, think about that. This blindness was, blindness was so that Christ could once again solidify that he is God in the flesh. 
so that he could once again solidify that he is the Messiah and that he is the one that brings life to eyes that are dead and blind. All things, all things, all things ultimately work for the glorification of God and for the good of his people that love him. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, even blindness, even death, even disease, even calamity. They will all ultimately work for the glorification of the Father. And it is wrong for us to see each of these things and not trust that in them, through them, God will receive much glory. It is also wrong for you to blame the devil. Oh, it got so quiet. One of the things I will say real quick, and I'll get back to that point. One of the things that shames me is to my shame. It embarrasses me. Is that whenever there is a group of people gathering together to do something in particular, maybe go on uh, paintballing or maybe go play basketball together. If someone gets hurt, if you ask my mother, she will automatically assume I was the one who got hurt. Without knowing who got hurt, you call her and marry someone got hurt. How bad is Antonio? If you asked her, she would believe that I am an accident looking for somewhere to happen. Well, this man was a miracle waiting. For somewhere to happen. Why was this man born blind? His life was created by God for the day in which God the Father would send God the Son who would fix his eyes upon his own and bring sight to this blind man for the glory of God. His parents may have looked at him and said when he was born, what are we going to do with this blind baby? They may have even been disappointed in the reality that, that one day he may spend his life Standing or sitting beside a gate begging people to take care of him. But when God was forming this man in his mother's womb, he knew that along the dusty Judean streets, his incarnate son would one day walk and fix his eyes upon this man and give sight to him so that he would no longer walk in darkness. Your affliction is not unknown by God. Your affliction is, listen, sovereignly ordained by God. Dare I say it is even sent by God. And before you reject that statement and say that we must simply rebuke or blame it on the devil, that God has sent it into your life, consider, so that it, the affliction, can produce much good in your life that will bring much glory to God. And if you see it from that point of view, then you will welcome affliction. You will welcome it if it comes because you say, as James, consider a pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Oh, and at the end of all of this, Peter says that your, your faith, as it is refined, will be like gold, pure gold, though it be tested by fire. So bring the fire. If it's going to make me pure, if it's going to make me better, if it's going to make me more like you, then bring the fire. Oh, be careful to pray that prayer. Because God is so quickly ready to answer that one. 
And for some of you, you have not prayed it. And he hasn't stopped answering it. Let God be God. God. This is for the glory of God. Jesus then includes his disciples and says, his work or we must work. He says we must work in John 5, 17. He says, I must work. He's now pulling his disciples in and saying, we must work. We must work to accomplish the work of God. And here's the answer. No, it's not anyone's fault. It is for the glory of God. And then he almost dismisses the question and says this. Let us not sit around and discuss meaningless theological notions that simply cause nothing but philosophies to arise that are rooted more in the minds of sinful men than they are in the mind of God's word. We sit around and we discuss and we debate all sorts of things. All the while, there are blind people that we are passing every single day. And we want to gather around and say, what do you think about this question? And what do you think about that question? As we are together walking past people who are dying of the same disease that you and I were dying of. How quickly we forget the grace that was given to us when we sat as blind beggars hoping only for a copper coin. And instead we get life and life eternal. Let us work. What is that work? To get about the work of making the light of Christ shine upon darkened souls through the preaching and proclaiming of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you share this work of God. What is this work? You may ask. John 6.29 says the work of God is that you believe in him whom the Father has sent. Jesus said we must work together the work of God. Has Christ stopped working? No, he's not. He's working through you. Amen. Jesus looks into the eyes of his disciples and says, let us get to work. Amen. The opportunity will not last long. Work while there is still day. Work while there is still time. Work while you still have life in your mortal bodies that are right now in the process of decay. Amen. Work. Amen. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Make it your life's goal, as I said earlier, to not go a week in your life Without sharing the gospel with at least one person. One blind man. One blind man. Who does not even know that they are blind. Were born for the time that you would encounter them. That you would share the gospel with them. And that that through sharing the gospel, light would come to their blind eyes. There are blind beggars all throughout this city. Throughout this world. And you carry the torch of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you wave in front of their eyes and cause sight to come. Jesus said in verse 4, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus will be in this world or that world for only six more months. His disciples, even after that, would have a short amount of time to share the truth. Let me ask you, in your life, right here, right now, are you satisfied with the work that you have done? Are you satisfied? If you were to die today, would you say, I've done enough? Are you satisfied with the work that God has entrusted you with? Are you satisfied with the amount of work that you've accomplished before, before the lights go out? Because when the lights go out, They will not come back on. Paul said in Ephesians 5.16, making the best use of time 
because the days are evil. Are you making the best use of your time? First Corinthians 15, 10 says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and his grace toward me, listen, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul essentially says, I did not waste, and I have not wasted the grace that has been given to me. God did not waste his grace by saving me. Why? Because I went to work. I went to work. And some of us are sitting on that grace. Sitting on that grace thinking, I do not need to work. Work? We're talking about grace alone. I don't need to work. I just sit on this grace, and when it's all said and done, I get life. While there is some truth to that, God has entrusted to you talents and he expects you to go invest in them and bring more back. Meaning he's given you gifts, talents to do what? To go and invest the gospel into the lives of the people who do not yet have it. So that when you stand before him, what you stand before him with are the souls of those whom you have shared the gospel with. Oh, that, my dear friends, is the only thing you take with you. And you can sit here young and you can sit here old. But whether you die today in your young state or die old in your in your in your dead state, your old state, you will be held accountable for what I have just told you. That's right. That's right. So seek the fame, seek the fortune, seek the popularity. And stand before God. And when he asks you, what did you do with the talents that I gave? Well, I hid them in my pockets. What does he do? Well, he'll reach into that pocket, pull it out and give it to the one who has invested much. And with you, he will toss you out. Along with the statement, you wicked, lazy soul. I only see you on Sundays. Why? Did you know that we are here three or four times a week? Where are you? Oh, I'm not speaking to all of you, of course. But this is for all of you. And in your daily life, as you work and as you live and as you encounter different people, what kind of light are you emanating as you live in this world? Or do the people who are walking in darkness call you your friend, call you friend because you are just as dark as they are? Stop wasting time. Stop wasting the things that have no bearing on your future in Christ. Don't waste your life. The grace that has been given to this man was for the glory of God. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are redeemed to do the work of God. Don't waste your salvation. Verse 6. Having said these things, here's the other instruction. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Why did Jesus use this mud method? If you read different commentaries, you'll find a number of different reasons that people give for this method. But the reality is this. Nobody knows. There's a lot of dumb (laughs) reasons. There's some interesting ones. But the reality is someone said to show the miracle working power of saliva. And he used the example and said, my grandmother said, if you lick a wart every single day, by the end of the year, it'll go away. I don't think that's the point that Jesus was trying to make in this passage. But here's the point. We could get lost in the method and forget all about the man. Oh, yes. Yes. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We could spend time, as I just said, trying to come up with reasons why he used this method and forget the man of the method. Jesus could have simply said to the man, even walking by or even thought it, see, and he would have saw. How do I say that? How can I say that? He's the one who stood on the edge. Think about this. And I was, as I was writing, I began to think, how could he have done this? What, what kind of man was Christ? He was the one, if you can get the imagery, who stood on the edge of eternity and said, let there be light. Yes. And there was light. Amen. So for to tell someone to see was no big deal for Jesus. He is the one who spoke to the tomb of Lazarus and told Lazarus, come forth. And out comes the dead man or the man who was once dead. Amen. This is the God man. The one through whom and for whom all things were created. So let us fix our gaze on the man. Yes. The God man, Jesus Christ. This is God in the flesh. Yes. Yes. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard for him. Yes. Yes. And think about this. If he's not God in the flesh, then all of these miracles demand an explanation. Mm. Right? Yes. If he's not God, then all the things that he's doing demand an explanation. But since he is God in the flesh, it is nothing for him to perform such a miracle. Amen. Jesus gives this blind man instructions as well. He says to the, to the blind man, go and wash, verse 7, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why did he give this blind man the instruction? I believe it was an instruction to see if this man would act upon faith. He stands before this man. He stands before this man and gives him a command. And rather than the command that rather than the blind man saying, "Are you crazy? Get off of me. Get this mud off of my eyes." He goes and does what Jesus commands him to do. Amen. Here is the Messiah, and because he's already worked in this blind man's heart, the blind man responds by faith or in faith and goes and washes. Now, not only does he receive his sight, but John also now gives us insight into the, their location. He was commanded to go wash in the pool of Siloam. This pool was just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, what is the significance of this pool? Now, listen closely as we close. In the days of Hezekiah, there was fear that if the city was ever under siege, the people would be surrounded and they would have no water to drink. So they built a water supply and the source came from a river or spring called Gihon. You'll recognize Gihon because, it's, because it is the, one of the four rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2. It is set on the temple hill and it flows down and rested in a pool called Siloam. And it is called sent because the water was sent from Gihon into the city. The pool spoke of God's provision. This water that was sent is also reference to Christ who was sent. As a man was going to wash in the water, he is washing in the water that has been provided by God, the true water, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As he was going to wash in that water, he was washing really in the one that was sent, the sent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he went to wash and cleared his eyes, he comes back to the Messiah and he can see. Actually, he doesn't come back to the Messiah. He can see. 
My brothers and sisters, you too have had your eyes opened by Christ because you've placed your faith in him alone. And he has given you again the ability to see. And in conclusion, the crowd's confusion. They said, is this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. Then how were his eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. I think I I skipped a, yeah, I, I am he. Made mud and said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went, washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. When we encounter Christ, it should cause a reaction like this crowd is reacting. They should say about you. What happened to him? They should say about you what has happened to her. And your answer should be, it is me. I went, I washed, and now I can see. And listen, they could say nothing to refute his claim of being able to see because they knew who he was. He sat there day after day and begged day after day. They knew him. And now they see the one who once sat and begged. Now able to see. Notice that he doesn't say, I'm not the man. Rather, he says, it is me. You should not be afraid to admit that you're different. You should be excited to admit that you are different. You should be ready when people begin to talk in ways that used to be okay with you to say to them, listen, I'm not okay with that anymore because I am not the same. When people come around you and give you different temptations, you should be not afraid to say to them, listen, I am not the same anymore. I would appreciate it if you shut up. Not you, them. You can keep amen in me all day long. (laughs) I'll take that. That helps me. You are different. And listen, and they are different. Enough of this sitting around and saying to people, I'm just like you are. No, they're blind and you're not. You can see and they can't. You're alive and they're dead. You're not just like they are. You're different. And be prepared to admit that you're different. Unless you're not different. Unless you want to fit in. Unless you want to make them feel comfortable. Unless you want to make them feel like... They're just as good as you are. Then tell them there's no difference between you and them. You need to be prepared to tell them. No, you are under the wrath of God. My dear friend. And because I care about you. Because I am a beggar. I was once a beggar looking for food. I recognize another beggar who was in my condition. And here's the true food. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There must first be an awareness of blindness. They must acknowledge the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonder of his power. Have you done that this morning? Have you recognized your blindness? Have you trusted in the truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, able to save you from your sin? Have you continually been amazed at the wonder and power that he is displaying in your life? Have you recognized and fixed your gaze upon Christ As he has opened up your blind eyes, now you are saying, I will follow you. And as the man says later on, Lord, I believe and falls down and worships him. 
Have you trusted in this perfect work this morning? And if you have, then I'd like you to come this morning. And here's what I'd like you to do. As we stand and as we close our eyes and prepare our hearts for the communion table, I'd like you to remember the time when your eyes were blind and that you could not see. And when you open your eyes to come in fellowship with the Lord, I'd like you to give him praise. At the fact that he's given you light to see and that he's invited you to come into fellowship with him. Let's stand this morning.